Welcome to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, a bi-weekly look at all things related to the growing elite club's National League, the ECNL. For more information on the ECNL, visit us at www.theecnl.com. Now, here's your host for Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, former U.S. soccer press officer and longtime soccer broadcaster, Dean Linky. Welcome to the debut episode of Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, a podcast that will air every two weeks and will cover all aspects of the growing and ever-changing ECNL. That means visits with coaches, administrators, players, medical staff, sponsors, and all things trending in ECNL and youth soccer. Hello, folks. I'm Dean Linky, longtime soccer play-by-play man and proud to serve as the host, or better yet, just the traffic cop for this exciting new venture and excited to be joined regularly on this show by the ECNL president and CEO, for my money, one of the smartest people in the game of soccer in this country, my friend, Christian Lavers. Welcome, Christian. Dean, I'm super excited to be here, excited to be working with you and really excited about this podcast. So Christian, why now for Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast? You know, we felt that there's a lot of topics that people would enjoy hearing more about in youth soccer, things that impact kids and coaches and all things about the game. And for us to be able to give a voice to all the different people that you mentioned, directors, coaches, experts, medical staff, administrators, we think it'll be a great conversation topic and something that will help move the game forward. And we are really excited to have you obviously a longtime U.S. soccer ambassador and a broadcaster in so many different places involved in helping make this a fantastic podcast. Make no mistake, Christian, I'm honored and excited to be a part of it. So let's go to work. Tell us about the two special guests we have on the debut show. Sure. So the first ever Breaking the Line podcast will start with Dr. Drew Watson, the ECNL chief medical advisor. Dr. Watson is exceptionally well-credentialed sports medicine pediatrician. And he's going to talk about his role in the league, what he's provided with respect to return to play protocols, and most interestingly and relevant, some new survey data that he and the University of Wisconsin have put out recently with respect to COVID-19 and new sports. And then we'll have uh, Richmond United director, Jay Howell, a man who has been all over the country in sport that's on both the ECNL Boys Executive Board and the ECNL Girls Executive Board and has a tremendous amount of experience about youth soccer and how it's evolved and maybe where it's going in the future. That's a power-packed show, and we'll be back with Christian Lavers and Dr. Watson after this quick message from the ECNL. With over 200 clubs and nearly 50,000 players, the ECNL is leading youth soccer forward in the United States. A new season has kicked off and a new brand identity has been launched, but one thing stays constant. The ECNL is more than a league. 
Welcome back to the debut episode of Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Back on May 13th, 2020, the Elite Clubs National League, a leading youth sports organization in the United States, announced the appointment of Dr. Drew Watson as Chief Medical Advisor to the ECNL. The newly formed position within the ECNL will support the health and safety of players, provide education to coaches and clubs, and guide the league in developing best practices in youth soccer. Dr. Watson is a board-certified pediatrician and sports medicine physician at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health in the Departments of Orthopedics and Rehabilitation. He is a team physician for University of Wisconsin Division of Intercollegiate Athletics and the head team physician for Forward Madison FC and USL League One. In addition to his clinical roles, Dr. Watson is a nationally recognized researcher in sports medicine and has published extensively on cardiovascular exercise physiology and the effects of fitness, training load, sleep, and well-being on injury risk and performance in athletes. He is the lead author of the clinical report on soccer injuries in children and adolescents from the American Academy of Pediatrics and a member of the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine. In addition to his impressive career as a physician, Dr. Watson has been a youth soccer coach for more than 20 years, earning his U.S. Soccer A license in 2001 and continues coaching youth soccer today. In his role as ECNL Chief Medical Advisor, Dr. Watson will work to promote the health and safety of ECNL players in terms of both medical care and education of players, parents, and coaches. As a national leader in youth athletics, providing a platform for the development of some of the world's best young players, the ECNL has a history of providing programming with the best interests of players at its core. Now, the ECNL is faced with new conversations related to player health and well-being. With that, Dr. Watson has and will provide recommendations to help guide the ECNL and its member clubs regarding return-to-play protocols and training and competition through COVID-19 as players and teams begin engaging in team soccer. And as competitions resume, Dr. Watson will optimize the safety protocols and medical care for ECNL members at national events and other league programs. With that as the backdrop, it's great to have Christian Lavers, the CEO and president of ECNL, and Dr. Drew Watson with us. And we'll start with you, Christian Lavers. Captain Obvious, this was an important hire. Yeah, well, obviously, the last six months or so have been pretty challenging for all sports, and soccer's no exception to that. And as we started looking towards the fall and beyond and, and how soccer's going to come back, it was pretty clear that we were going to need a plethora of medical advice in terms of how to put things in place to safely get back. And that's Priority number one is to have the health and safety of the players and the coaches and everybody involved in soccer taken care of. I've been fortunate or unfortunate to know uh, Dr. Watson for a long time. I would say Dr. Watson, when he used to be just Drew, we used to coach together for a while. And we say that Drew went from being a full-time soccer coach and then deciding that med school was a better option. And I don't know why, but uh, it's all turned back now full circle. And so when I approached Drew, about potentially being involved with the ECNL from a medical capacity. He was really interested and his background and credentials, all joking aside, in the medical community and sports medicine specifically in pediatrics is pretty fantastic. So we were really excited to have him. Chief Medical Officer of the ECNL, Dr. Watson, I know you're a humble man, but when you think about that title and that role and that responsibility, what does it mean? Yeah, I think it's really flattering. I mean, the opportunity to serve as a bridge between some of the academic things that we do and the real world that soccer athletes live in is, is really the what I've been trying to do for a long time. I've been 
you know, in soccer for many years. I've been in medicine for a little less time than that. But the reality I think that we experience in academic sports medicine is that there's often a disconnect between what we're trying to do and the actual reality that young athletes live in. And so the opportunity to fill this role and potentially have an impact, particularly during the context of COVID-19, was really a tremendous opportunity for me and, and really an honor to try and fulfill. Christian and Dr. Watson, testing and safety. You guys are already making great strides in that. You have the floor. Tell us where we are. Sure. And I'll defer a lot of this to Drew and just set some backdrop here because he's the expert. But when we first approached Drew, COVID-19 was obviously first and foremost in our minds. But there's a lot of other things eventually that we'd like to get to in terms of providing more education and information about a variety of things that impact health and performance of young athletes. But COVID-19 is the here and the now. So we started out with return to play protocols. And maybe, Drew, you can talk through briefly the two protocols that you put together in return to training and competition several months ago and what went into that? Yeah, I mean, there was certainly a considerable time crunch. We had a lot of very sudden restrictions from COVID-19, a lot of those kind of occurring in mid-March, but there were groups trying to get back out on the field in May. And so there was a lot of urgency to try and develop actionable ways for them to do so in a safe way but not a lot of information out there at the time. So we were drawing heavily on some of the information from the CDC, some of the information from local public health authorities. But in terms of contextualizing that to sport and specifically to soccer, it was really about us trying to integrate what we knew about the disease and the ability of different protocols to prevent it and putting those into a framework that would actually be actionable within a soccer environment. So. Thankfully, a lot of the things that we did initially have really been borne out to continue to be the recommendations that would be used to keep kids in a relatively safe environment during COVID-19. But a lot of it was drawing on a combination of the public health information available at the time, but also incorporating a lot of our experience, having been in soccer and understanding the realities of what soccer training and competition environments are like so that we're providing information and recommendations that are actually usable and applicable to those contexts. From that point, Drew, obviously you had done a study with Dr. Tim McGoin as well about the impacts of inactivity and the suspension of sport and how that has affected players. And so I know obviously we put together the white paper and pushed out the white paper that you wrote on those issues. And, and maybe you can talk a little bit about what went into that and, and your thoughts on that topic. Yeah, I mean, I think as we continue to try and navigate decisions about if and when and how to resume sports, we really need to be doing as much as we can with information. And I think you're trying to balance sort of two competing risks. One is, what is the risk of viral transmission or acquisition within a youth soccer environment or a sport environment in particular. And we can sort of circle back to that down the road here. But the other part of it is, what are the knock-on effects of restricting kids from sports? And I think those of us that are parents of young athletes and those of us that work in sports would have anticipated that these could be pretty significant risks. But when we had our sport and school cancellations in Wisconsin, my collaborator, Tim McGuire, who's just a world-class researcher at the University of Wisconsin, had the foresight to sort of pull us all together, develop a survey to disseminate nationwide about physical activity levels and mental health in 
adolescent athletes. And so we got data back from over 13,000 kids throughout the country. We've been doing this for a while in Wisconsin. And so we had about 5,000 individuals in the prior years that we had surveyed over similar measures in Wisconsin that we could now compare to over 3,000 kids that responded to this most recent survey. And what we found was that just among high school aged athletes, physical activity level following those school and sport cancellations from COVID dropped by 50%. So this is in a backdrop of a country that has real issues with physical inactivity. Only about one in four high school kids get the recommended amount of physical activity. So now on top of that, we layer COVID-19 and the implications of physical inactivity that that seems to incorporate. And we have a real crisis of sedentarism and physical inactivity in kids across the country. But maybe the most staggering part is if you look at the percentage of our athletes that normally report moderate to severe depression. So the sort of depression that you would find that would warrant referral and evaluation with a, a specialist or a healthcare provider, normally that's around just under 10% pre-COVID. When we looked again in May, we found that it had more than tripled to 33%. We also found that about 25% of our Wisconsin athletes were reporting moderate to severe anxiety. So again, this is in the backdrop of a real public health issue before COVID, that anxiety and depression are very big problems among adolescents in this country, but now we've seen even more dramatic increases among our population of athletes. So this really kind of was alarming, I think, to us to see that sort of physical inactivity, that sort of exaggeration of mental health issues in the context of school and sport restrictions. And so it, at least as we're trying to inform discussions of whether we should resume sport participation, we really are trying to balance the potential associated risk of virus transmission against the very real and significant implications of isolating adolescents and restricting them from the things that they find value in. So that white paper was really well received. And hopefully for those who haven't seen it, they can get a copy of it off of our websites and the resource centers. It also begged a question here when you're talking about the balancing act between COVID risks and all these other mental and physical health risks. And it begged a question about what is the real risk of transmission of COVID within a youth soccer environment? And as you've heard me say before, there's a lot of academic papers that ask questions that nobody cares the answers to. And then there are researchers that ask questions that everybody wants the answer to. And I think this is one of the latter. And so we had a discussion with Brian Engie of, of the Surf Hub Sports Organization who had taken some leadership to do an informal survey of COVID rates in SoCal with a bunch of clubs. Drew, you took the leadership at that point to say, hey, this is something that maybe is important and valuable at a much bigger nationwide public health discussion. So why don't you talk about the surveys that you've put together and what's come out of that? Yeah, I mean, I think when we were talking with Brian about their initial data, it was really reflective of what our experiences have been. I mean, I've been back on soccer fields coaching for the last couple months as you have and, and just talking with other people in other sports, our day-to-day -day experience is that the disease burden at least seems to be quite low and that the cases that do happen really seem to be very mild and self-limiting. So when we kind of were seeing that initial effort that they put forward, really it aligns very well with your experience. 
but more than anything, it really made it clear that this needed to be reproduced on a national level. Like we needed to try to at least insert some information into this discussion. Because I think the reality is when we're trying to balance whether or not to reopen youth sports, we don't really have good information about the, what the viral transmission risk is like, what the disease burden is like among athletes. And so we're always kind of flying in the dark. So because of the relationship we had, it seemed kind of natural that we would try and leverage the ECNL in order to distribute the kind of survey that could collect this information across the groups that are part of the ECNL and maybe be able to demonstrate this kind of evidence on a nationwide level. So not surprisingly, the appetite for this among clubs was really high and we had a tremendous and rapid response. My research team and I developed this survey I think we started developing it a couple of weeks ago. We distributed it. We got back responses from nearly 130 different clubs, representing almost 100,000 players from 34 different states within five days. So of those, a small number had not restarted. But if you look at the 124 clubs that had restarted participating in soccer since the COVID-19 restrictions, this is over 90,000 players. On average, they've been participating for about 10 weeks. So there's variability from one part of the country to the next, but on average, there are over two months of participation. We saw nearly 50,000 trainings, over 6,000 games that were accounted for. And in all of that soccer, we've identified 280 cases among players. Now, that's always a little bit difficult to contextualize, but if you wanna do that in sort of public health terms, That means that over a roughly two-month span, we see about 300 cases per 100,000 children. To reference that or contextualize that with what we see in the broader nationwide numbers for kids, the case rate from the United States over that same 10-week period is just under 500 cases per 100,000. So not only are we seeing case rates among soccer that aren't worse than the background rate among children, they actually appear to be substantively lower. It's difficult to make comments about causal relationships within those, but you certainly look at that and don't feel that soccer incorporates a significant increased risk of acquiring COVID-19 compared to just simply being a child in the country. And when we followed up and asked how many of those cases had been traced back to transmission during soccer, we found one, zero cases that resulted in hospitalization, zero deaths from COVID-19. So at least As we have found within this survey, we find that the case rates are relatively low compared to the background rates, that there's very little evidence that it's being transmitted through soccer participation, and that the cases when they do happen are quite mild and self-limiting and resolve without too much difficulty. And so I think this kind of helps insert more information into this conversation about when and how we balance these competing risks. So if I was to summarize that for the layman, and I'll put myself in that category, there's a huge data gap in terms of what the impact of COVID was in youth sports in particular, and to say nothing in the specific context of youth soccer. And your survey is finding there is significantly less presence of the disease, but even maybe more importantly, the evidence of transmission within the soccer context is very, very low. Yeah, I think that's about right. I mean, there are certainly limitations to our ability to identify transmission completely. This is a burden for 
all public health efforts in virtually any context. Children often tend to have asymptomatic cases. So what you can't speak to directly is whether there is an asymptomatic child that transmits it to a child who stays asymptomatic, who then passes it on to someone else. But at least in terms of the number of cases that we're identifying as actually being attributed to transmission during soccer, it's a tiny fraction of the total number of cases that we're seeing in youth soccer athletes. I think the challenge from here is to further expand this so that we can speak even more generalizably about other contexts. I mean, soccer has a lot of attributes that I think reduce the risk of transmitting it. Obviously, we tried to lay out a number of ways that clubs could potentially take steps to reduce their risk, but we all benefit from the fact that it's outdoors. We benefit from the fact that soccer is relatively widely spaced participants in relatively large areas. And so I think that also helps to reduce the risk. But if we're going to be able to try and move forward in resuming sports more broadly across the country, we really need to be generating similar sorts of information from basketball and hockey and volleyball and all these other contexts so that we can perhaps move forward even a little bit more generally for kids. Christian, I've heard you say before in speaking about walking the walk, talking the talk, when you were thinking about an ECNL chief medical advisor, the fact that in addition to his illustrious career as a physician, Dr. Watson has been a youth soccer coach for more than 20 years and continues coaching youth soccer today, that combination certainly didn't hurt in making this important hire, right? The real value here, as you point out, is the connection, and Drew said at the beginning, the connection between academia and research and the field and the practical environment that everybody lives in. And there's always challenges with connecting those, especially as you get into specific context and this specific environment of youth soccer. So for Drew to have that background, for him to have the personal experience as a player, now as a parent of a young athlete, all of that just makes it a lot easier for us to hopefully ask the right questions, for us to get information that is of real need and of real value to the people in youth soccer. And it's something we're very fortunate to have and really appreciate Drew's expertise. And for you, Dr. Watson, that's got to make it easier to want to do this. Yeah, I mean, this has been kind of a goal of mine since I began in medicine. I had to give up coaching for a couple years in med school because it just really doesn't fit. But I continued to coach through grad school. I coached through the first two years of medical school. I started coaching again as soon as I got back to Wisconsin. I mean, I get no greater source of satisfaction than teaching young kids and the opportunity to integrate that into what I do kind of day-to-day professionally is really just in many ways a dream come true. This is an unfortunate circumstance to be doing it kind of during COVID-19. But if it affords me the opportunity to have an impact that facilitates physical activity and sport participation for children, well, I really can't think of anything more important that I'd be spending my time doing. As we wrap up our time with the first ever guest on the ECNL podcast, Breaking the Line, I've got to ask this to both of you, but we'll start with you, Doctor. As competitions resume, and they are resuming, your job is to optimize the safety protocols and medical care for ECNL members at national events and other league programs. What does that mean, that responsibility to optimize the safety protocols and medical care? 
We, you know, originally developed our return to play recommendations in two parts, and that was very deliberate. We initially developed return to play recommendations for training environments because we really wanted to instantiate a period of training before getting back to competition, not only to avoid the possibility of rushing back too quickly and then having a resurgence of COVID-19, but also to potentially reduce the risk of injuries if we moved back to competition too quickly after this period of inactivity during all the COVID-19 restrictions. But then we also released return to competition recommendations and we're actively continuing to put together and devise the ways that we think we can keep individuals the safest within national events and within league events. I say this relatively frequently. I think the likelihood of viral transmission during actual soccer for players, I think there's just more and more data that it's relatively small. But our real challenge, I think, is to try and ensure that any viral transmission off the field is what we're particularly careful about. So we're developing protocols that include symptom monitoring, temperature checks, disinfection, hygiene practices, mask use, as well as a lot of kind of context-specific elements of game environments and national event environments that we like to think will make these safe for both the participants as well as the attendees at the events. And that on balance, given the known benefit of the participation in activities like this for the kids that they involve, that we continue to do this in what is overall a safe and a healthy way. So obviously the research that you did, Drew, is now available. It's public on our website, which will link back to the University of Wisconsin where the research was ultimately done. So maybe you can point people to that research so that they could look at it directly themselves. But then also, as we hinted at the beginning, your appointment in this role ultimately is to do a lot more than just deal with COVID-19. And hopefully that will be in the background here in the coming months and we can move forward onto other things. So maybe you can give some sense of other areas where the league and you may be working and where you may be doing research that's also in the benefits of health performance of youth athletes. Yeah, absolutely. So prior to COVID-19, I spent a lot of my time in kind of two broad areas. One is within exercise physiology, and then the other is within looking at how different risk factors interact to potentially result in an in-season injury for athletes. So this has been in both youth athletes and collegiate athletes and encompasses things like sleep, fitness, training load, well-being, different kind of sport participation patterns, and how these things interact to influence the risk of injury in athletes. And then flipping it around, how things like injury impact mental health in athletes and their ability to return to activity Christian, we've obviously collaborated on this over the years and have published some data that I'm really proud of showing the way that things like training load and mood and stress and sleep all interact to influence injury risk in athletes. My hope is that assuming at some point we get out from under COVID-19 in the relatively near future, that we're going to be able to disseminate information and potentially even collect data to further these efforts to identify ways that we can potentially identify at-risk athletes and intervene on their behalf to reduce their risk of injury, to promote their mental health, and to generally end up fostering physically and mental well children as they navigate their sport participation. Well, and that lines up perfectly with our mission to raise the game and make the youth soccer experience even better. And we're really appreciative of your expertise and looking forward to the future. 
Dr. Watson, thanks so much for kicking off the first ever ECNL podcast. Yeah, my pleasure, Dean. I, I really enjoy the opportunity to talk about these things. I spend more and more of my time trying to help navigate this unusual new landscape we have, and this is just a great way to be able to do it. Are you kidding me? What a great way to kick off Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast with Christian Labors, president and CEO of ECNL, and Dr. Drew Watson. As the game continues to evolve in the United States, the ECNL remains the standard of excellence in youth soccer. The Elite Clubs National League has grown to include over 200 clubs and nearly 50,000 players across the country, with a robust competition platform for teams, educational resources for coaches and clubs, and unparalleled identification and development opportunities for players. Alongside its member clubs, collaborating to create a better future, the ECNL continues to raise the game every day. The ECNL is more than a league. And welcome back to the debut show of Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Dean Linky, Christian Labors, now as promised, joined by Jay Howe, who's done so much for the game. Here are his current titles, and he's done so much more before that, but as you heard in Christian Labor's Open, he's on the executive committee for Richmond United. He's on both boards for the ECNL. He's the executive director of the Richmond Strikers, and he's entering his seventh year as the head coach for the Randolph-Macon College women's soccer team, which is in Ashland, Virginia, Division Three. I've known Jay for a long time. Welcome to the debut episode, Jay How Great to be with you. It's fantastic. It's always wonderful to be on the first of anything, so I'm excited. That is so well said. And, and Christian, when you look at his resume, it got started a long time ago, and he has really made an impression in multiple ways. And I know you wanted to talk about one particular one. Yeah, well, I was trying to count the titles, and I think I, I ran out of fingers about halfway through your intro, Dean. So, you know, as you said, Jay's been around a long time. But one of the things, you know, I remember the first time we met Jay was sitting in a Marriott in Chicago. Yep. Talking, uh, talking about the Red Bull Girls League expansion with probably 30 other coaches from around the country in the room. But that was really like step two from when Red Bull 17 started a year or two before that. And I, and I know you were intricately involved in that. And for people who are in soccer today who don't know the evolution of the last 15 years and the incredible amount of change really Red Bull 17 on the boys' side was the first sort of stone in the pond that started the ripples of change. I thought it would be interesting. Maybe you can talk to us and share a little bit about what that was, where it came from in terms of concept and how that sort of started this evolution. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was 2005, I think is when it was. Really what had happened at that time is, is you had a group of what I would call more powerful established successful clubs that were interested in one playing each other more often in an organized fashion as well as having what I would say a little bit more say in the format and, and the process in which we were able to compete. There was an understanding as well as this would also help with the showcasing of the players and so it started on the boys side and it started with some conversations with Sam Holt at FC Delco, Tim Schultz at Rush, Mike Makovic in Chicago Magic, Kevin Kalish in St. Louis, Greg Blassingame in, in Concord. And it was, it was more of a discussion of how can we pull all this together? 
early on, Jay Miller joined in with Atlanta Fire, and he's always been a fantastic mentor for me, and he saw the value in all the things that we were discussing, and he decided to sort of join with me and co-chair this as we moved forward. And it, through a series of meetings, we decided to pull together ultimately 17 clubs in the first year, and we decided to play some games for showcases. And the first set of games for the Red Bull 17s was actually at the Castle Showcase, now the NCFC Showcase. And so it was exciting because it was brand new, and it was a brand new because it was sort of came from the grassroots, from the clubs. It was something that we organized. And we could tell right away that there was a tremendous excitement with the players. They thought it was fantastic to have sort of this higher level of competition that was created for them, as well as we saw the impact with the college recruiting right away. They thought it was great because they were to see the top players in the top clubs in one setting over the course of four fields or six fields. So we were on to something and then it quickly became other things in which that began the, the sort of, like you said, the step two was, becoming way more organized, professionalizing it, bringing in probably smarter people to get things going. So it's, that's how everything sort of went from there. But it was, it was a great first step. It was very exciting when it happened. So if we look at those 17 clubs and that concept, and then that evolved into a girls' side and the Red Bull League for the girls' side, which led to another meeting in, in uh, I believe it was St. Louis at the NCAA convention at the time. Yep. And it's interesting hearing the names you mentioned. I mean, the some of the names you mentioned, the coaches and clubs involved have moved on to MLS and moved on into other areas. Some of those clubs don't even exist anymore. But then you get the, the Red Bull Girls League going. It had its ups and downs and starts and fits, but the same sort of concept. And then walks in U.S. soccer, right? Yep. And yep. Uh, maybe you can talk about what happened next? Well, we had a, one of our final organizational meetings down at the Nike Friendlies that they used to have down in Bradenton. And so at that time, Jay Miller and I, as well as others, thought it was important to have U.S. soccer presence as well, because a lot of the players from these clubs were playing on the current youth national team systems. And so we made sure that John Hackworth was there, and we made sure that Bob Jenkins was there as well. And, and what were their roles at the time? I think that they were both U.S. youth national staff. I think John Hackworth at the time was the national team coach, I believe, with the 17s then. I think that was after Ellinger. If I'm wrong with the timing, but I think that, that those were the two that were involved that time. Bob Jenkins had been involved with the youth setup for a very long time. And so they attended all of our meetings, and I sent them updates of what was going on because I thought it was important for the players to also be seen at this level. So we wanted to have early on the presence from U.S. soccer to be at our, at our events. And dealing with the U.S. soccer and the, the way everybody was excited about the acceptance of this new sort of format, that's when really we got into having more discussions about we have to do it for the girls if we're doing it for the boys. And so that's when the discussions happened. And then after really going through, I guess, 18 months of doing Red Bull, there became the, the idea within U.S. soccer to have a national league, an academy, the developmental academy. That was the next step is being organized by U.S. soccer and having a competition and a format that would be more national, more clubs, more regionalized games, as well as showcase opportunities. So I remember when that announcement was made, I was coaching on the boys' side at FC Milwaukee at the time, and we were at, at the USYS regionals, and I may have been in Iowa, but I remember everybody walking around the fields, looking at each other saying, are you going to do this new academy? You know, what do you know about it? Should we do it? Should we not do it? And it was sort of everybody looking at each other and almost like a uh, prisoner's dilemma. Of, yes. 
well, if, if I don't go in and you do go in, what does that mean? And then everybody decided to jump. And then an uh, 09 was the, the launch of this DA program that, as you've just outlined, I doubt very many people realize kind of was seeded by the Red Bull concept that originated within the clubs and guys like yourselves and the, and the other ones that you, that you mentioned. Well, yeah, and it's, and it's, yeah, it was absolutely, but it's also important that the, you know, the, the club leadership across the country by that time had bought in, you know, you had Hassan and, and the Texans that were as a part of Red Bull. You had, you know, Derek Armstrong with Nomads. The National League for Red Bull was a national group of 17 clubs that decided to take the first step. And then obviously it also demonstrated, I think, that the clubs, and, I'm, and there's a lot of clubs now involved, the clubs do have a say and they do have power in, in decision-making for what they would like to see for their players. They're the ones working at the grassroots. They're the ones investing in their development of their players. And this was a chance for them to actually have us have a voice in the path as we go forward. And so, you know, did Jay Howell and Jay Miller help? Yeah. But it was also important that you had all the other major directors of coaching that also had, you know, serious success on the field, have developed players, have professional players, national team players. They were in support as a group as well. And that made it much simpler to move forward. So yes, things were sort of laid out for U.S. soccer to step into the void and add more clubs and more quality and, and sort of move from there. Then you flash forward to the Red Bull girls and you had guys like Leighton Walters and Mike O'Neill yeah. trying to take uh, move that forward. And yep. then Doug Bracken and myself got involved and proposed this new thing called ECNL. And then you fast forward even farther and, and you got the girls academy and then you have the end of the academy and the boys ECNL and skipping a lot of other stories that would be really interesting, but maybe for another time, we get to today. And so now we have the ECNL, we have a new logo and identity dropping today. We got this new podcast today. We got a complete brave new world in terms of the youth landscape in comparison, even to five years ago, much less the 15 years ago you were just referencing. So what do you think about it, man? What, what, what is today like? Yeah, it's unbelievable. It's, you know, it's, it's exceeded all expectations to have truly a, a national platform for development for girls and boys to play soccer, to, the, to have the, what I would say, the benchmark for showcasing opportunities within this country or anywhere else, to be honest with you. The organization behind it, the professionalism behind it, it's, it's unbelievable. It's, I, I mean, somewhere I have like a little notepad where I have a folder in it and I have on that everybody's cell phone written down and everybody's email written down. And that's the way I was contacting people in 2005. And now, you know, here it's, we are. It's, on probably, a, it's right next to your phone tree. It's right next to, it, it is the phone tree. It is exactly right. And so it's, you know, and then here we are now we're on a, you know, we're having a podcast and then we're, we're talking about it. And what it proves to me is that, yes, I'm, what it is, is I'm getting old now. That's what it proves to me 15 years later. But, uh, no, it's, it's unbelievable. And I think that, you know, the, the new logo and the new look and everything is, it's fantastic. I mean, there's, it's all, it's all positives and it's going to continue to be positives as we move forward. What it means to me, Christian and Jay, and I don't mean this in a sycophantic way, but it means that from the beginning, both of you have cared about the development of youth soccer in this country and you were patient in that process. Comment on that, Jay, you go first and then Christian. I mean, I thought it was really important that when I was at Castle at the time, and I, and I know that Christian feels this way, and I know that Doug Bracken feels this way, and we can go down Roy Dames and Michael Neal and, and Greg Blassingame. I can just go down the list. We got into the 2000s, and we all had a lot of players playing at a high level. 
it wasn't just about placing them in college anymore because we were doing that. It was about we wanted to produce professional players and we wanted to produce national team players. And we had to have an avenue for the very best to have a chance to develop within the very best and to compete against the very best. And so it doesn't take anything away from the local leagues. It takes nothing away from the grassroots leagues. I think that within the game, everybody has to have the appropriate opportunity to develop. And I think that there was a little bit of, there was something missing there at that time. And so it became difficult because of the, the setup in the, the, the mid 2000s that it was very difficult to really get consistent environments, consistent games at a high level because you had to play in your local leagues and or you had to play in a regional league and or you had to sign up for certain tournaments. And we would try to figure out which tournaments each of us were going to so we could play each other because ultimately it doesn't matter what sport it is or what level you're at, the best want to play the very best. That's how, you know, steel makes steel harder by hitting more steel. And so I think people wanted to have that environment as we go forward. And I think that's still true today. I think on the girls and the boys in the ECNL, I mean, the ultimate thing is the best players want to play against other best players. That's how they see where they stand on a daily environment. So like I said, it's, it's exceeded my expectations and I'm looking forward to many more years of this. And I would add to it, when you look at that time frame, it was just so difficult to get any change done. Um, in any ways. I mean, that, that was back in the days of travel permits were necessary to cross a state line and play a game. Yep. You know, getting a kid to play on more than one roster took, you know, a minor miracle. And so I look at a lot of this and these, these are not, it's not rocket science to use a cliche, but it was just, there were easy things that could be done to make the environment better that we, we struggled to. I used to say the most common thing in soccer was a bunch of coaches complaining at night about all the stuff they couldn't do and then going back into the same environment the next day and just accepting those restrictions. And so I think between discussions with guys and, the, and girls in the grassroots, we just said this can be done in a different way and it can be done in a better way. And that's the heart of the change and growth of the ECNL is that idea that comes up from a coach on the sideline on Saturday who says, this is a concern, this is a problem, this is an opportunity. And now there's actually an avenue for that concern or idea to actually get legs and go. And I think back in, in the early 2000s, those things just ended up in the uh, circular file, as it uh, was referred as the trash can. And so I think that's the excitement moving forward is that really our limits going to be set by our own imagination and our own ability to see new ideas and things that make the game better for players. You know, you mentioned Leighton Walters, fantastic in the early days with FC Delco, he had great teams. I met with Leighton Walters and Tom Anderson with uh, PDA early. And it was interesting from that conversation, Tom made it very clear that whatever we do, let's just make it great. Well, if we're going to do this, if we're going to change things, let's do it the right way. Let's make it great. And when you have people that have, you know, that kind of attitude and they support you, and obviously when you have the backing of an organization like PDA in the early years, it actually makes a huge difference. And so I agree with Christian is that, there was this time where people were ready for change. No one wanted to destroy anything. I think people just wanted to move forward and they wanted to make sure that it was done right. And I, I appreciate the trust that was put into, into this environment. And obviously when Christian and Doug stepped forward and said that, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll do some of this stuff, you know, I immediately pushed off away. That was fantastic. And then, um, but we also, uh, it was a trust that was, had to be involved there. It, it isn't always smooth, as Christian would say, with trust comes you know, responsibility. But I do appreciate that some of these large clubs did buy in 
They did show up. They did a great job on the field. There was a camaraderie there on the girls and the boys side. So there was, it was interesting how from 2005 into sort of, you know, 2010, there was such a change within the youth soccer culture. So when you have the name of a podcast called Breaking the Line, that means it can't be all softball questions. When I mentioned your patience, Christian, I really did feel like you were super patient dealing with U.S. soccer. In fact, you were like, yes, I'd love a seat at the table. I'd love to talk when they're ready. And that's where that patience comes in. Now Major League Soccer is stepping in. What is your reaction to that? How do you deal with that? I think the reality, I mean, if, if we look back at what the time period we were just talking about where getting change to occur was so difficult and, and, and it was like turning a battleship, now change is happening at a breakneck pace, right? I think within 36, 48 hours of the DA ending, the MLS announcement came out that said they're going to do something. And I guess I look at it with the same perspective that we ultimately took with respect to the Federation, and that is... It's a big country. There's a lot of people with different opinions. There's a lot of people with different ways of doing things. And ultimately, we're always going to be informed by what else is out there. And we're going to benchmark ourselves against other organizations, especially if they're good. They have great ideas or great programs in different areas. But our, our mission is to take care of the player and the youth soccer environment. And Youth soccer is a very different place than college soccer. It's a very different place than professional soccer. Youth soccer is where everybody starts. And no matter how long they're in it and whether they take this path or that path, we're going to be really well positioned to make sure that our clubs are served well so that they can serve their players really well. And they'll move on to college. Some will move on to become professionals. Some will move on and just become students. But that's where we're going to put our focus and we will continue to welcome working with everybody in the youth landscape who wants to work together. Because when we do that, good things happen. And hopefully with respect to MLS, over the next uh, six months, 12 months, whatever it is, we find that relationship that is positive so that um, everybody can be rowing in the same direction. I agree. I mean, this is, you know, I, I expect this within the United States, within, within our athletic culture. I mean, it, it doesn't you know, soccer, baseball, basketball. I mean, you're, you're going to have groups that are going to compete locally, regionally, nationally. Um, you're going to have people that move forward and have, you know, new ideas and new platforms and new structures. And I agree with Christian. I think that it's, it's important that we continue to have a dialogue and we continue to work together to try to create the best environment we can. But ultimately, the ECNL, our concern should be ourselves and making sure that we do the right things as an organization for our players that are a part of our organization. That's ultimately what our duty is, is to create a great environment for our players. And then hopefully we'll, we'll keep moving the game forward. But I, I absolutely believe that it we're, it's in everybody's interest to continue to work together if whenever possible. As we wrap up our time with Jay Howe and Christian Labors, I just want you to simply fill in the blank and we'll start with you, Jay Howe. I am most proud of ECNL because of what? Because I got Christian and Doug to do the work. <laughs> Listen, whenever Jay says you're good at something, just watch out. He's just Tom Sawyering you. He's <laughs> painting the fence and saying, this is so awesome. You should paint too. And then you look around and Jay's inside in the air conditioning. I neither confirm or deny that. That's exactly right. 
I will say this, and we talked about it before we came on the air, and I mean this sincerely, and I'm, I'm like you, Jay. I, I feel like I've been around the block a little bit and loved every second and always feel like I have the best seat in the house. But particularly when you grew your hair out, when I closed my eyes, I pictured Jay Howe and Christian Labors as almost the same person with the same goals, the same knowledge, and I call you guys doctors of the game. How do you feel about that sentiment? I think it's a compliment. It's fantastic. I mean, so yeah, it's all good. Now that I'm short haired, I'm probably a little bit better looking, but I think it's, 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 it's all good. I take, take any compliment from you. you. You've been, you've been all over the place in the game. So I'll, I'll take that compliment and run with it. Yeah, no, it's all, Dean, it's all good. Yes, Dean, we, we, yeah, we, you and I go way back to the way backs. So, but uh, no, it's like I said, it's all good now. And, you know, and we wouldn't, we certainly would not be here. Chris and I would not be here without Doug Bracken as well. So we're, like I said, we're the three amigos. We're, we're very different and we have some very exciting, interesting conversations at times. So it's all, it's all been great. Christian Labors, Jay Howe, no matter what your hairstyle is, you guys are quality. Thank you so much for being on the debut show of Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Thank you for having me here. It's been great. Thanks for uh, quarterbacking this whole thing, Dean. Looking forward to the next episode and where this goes. Thanks for listening to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. For more information on the ECNL, visit us at www.theecnl.com. And if you have a suggestion for the show or a great idea for a guest, please email us at info at theecnl.com. Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast is an ECNL production. ECNL, more than a league.